Hi guys, I'm Daniel. And I'm Frankie. And this is Propagated Podcast. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm so excited about this week. And I know I say that every week, but I'm really excited about this week because basically our entire podcast started from um, being inspired by The Drunken Botanist by Amy Stewart. So here we are back on our alcohol <laughs> series. Talking more about alcohol. It's going to be great. Yeah. Hi. Sorry, I was looking at my... I was looking at my monstera in the background and there's a leaf that's yellowing and I was being very angry at it for yellowing. Oh, I was and wondering I was why totally you were glaring. spaced out. <laughs> I was like glaring at my monstera. That's, that's totally my bad. I'm sorry. I feel like Hi. that's pretty on brand. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? How's your week been? It's been a week. Uh, I guess Happy New Year's, first of all. Happy New Year. Happy 2021. Happy holidays we made it. also. I don't think I've talked to you much since the holiday season either really yeah so just mm-hmm, mm-hmm. happy all the things that happen at the end and beginning of a new year <laughs> and old year uh but it's exactly. been fine really it's not been bad i've had a lot of fun with my friends like i like this whole quarantine we've had a pot of people and we've just kind of stuck to that so did new year stuff with them it was good i love that did you miss um bartending on new year's eve <laughs> do i miss having a thousand dollars in my pocket that I didn't have <laughs> yesterday, sure. But do I miss the people I had to deal with bartending? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was like, oh man, I miss parties. But then I was sitting there um, in a bath with like glitter bath salts, playing Animal Crossing and like needle felting and reading. And I was like, this is actually the best night I could ever imagine. <laughs> I love that. I just started learning to cross stitch. Ooh, that's fancy. I feel like I'm actually not doing too bad. This is like how far I've made it. It just says fuck all. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I need to screenshot this. Hold on. <laughs> that's perfection. I love it. Is so what is good. it going to say? It's going to say, fuck all y'all. It's not oh, that far from done. I love it. I love cross-stitching. But yeah, I've gotten really into needle felting. There's just something so satisfying about stabbing something a bunch of times and then making something cute out of it. I've always thought that needle felting looked like it would be a cool thing to do. Yeah. If you like cross-stitch, I'm sure you would like it. It's pretty I'm easy to start. as good in at looking at things in the three-dimensional, which I feel like needle felting requires. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I used to do metalworking and all that kind of stuff. I took a jewelry class and obviously ceramics we were required to take in art school and stuff like that. So 3D doesn't really scare me. <laughs> oh, I feel that. I just have never really done much of it. So I'm just like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know what we should do in the summer? We should go see if we can find a riverbed that has really good clay and then make something out of it. I'm not opposed to that. I think that sounds fun as fuck. Foraging adventures. I can't wait to forage again. <laughs> I'm not going to be working, I think, still when spring rolls around. So it'd be Aww. great. Yeah. Okay. I have a question for you before we start. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite plant that you own right now? Oh, God. That I own, that I currently own? Mm-hmm. 
<sighs> Frankie, why do you got to do this to me? They're all my favorites. They're my bait. No, I'm just kidding. I can tell um, you mine. I'll say it really quietly so my other plants can't hear, but I'm most proud of this angel wing begonia because it's grown like six inches in the last two months. Honestly, mine is probably one of my newer plants that I've gotten that I got during quarantine, and it's called a cardboard palm. Ooh. And it's grown a bunch, and it's really cool looking, and I like it a lot. But I guess that's probably my, I think it's my favorite because it's weird. I'm mad at Maya Dance and I right now because I don't know what I'm doing to make it angry. I think it needs to be repotted, but I'm afraid to put repot it in the wintertime. So, like, mm-hmm. it's a whole thing. Yeah, but I think, yeah, probably the cardboard palm because I had never seen one before. Yeah. That's actually a good thing to address is that you probably you really shouldn't repot your plants in the wintertime, especially when they're in their dormant stage because it can do more damage than good. I mean, it, it's different if you, like, have a greenhouse yeah. And it's like they're not really hitting a dormant stage as heavily. But if they're like just regular indoor house plants, they're not going to be happy if you mess around with their roots while they're trying to store their sugars for the cold season. It's like when someone keeps ripping the blanket off of you when you're trying to sleep and you're like, hey, stop. What, what the fuck? Get off me. <laughs> I mean, not really, but I like that metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> it works. It works to, to show the plant's annoyance that you're... Hey, your insolence, I suppose. I don't know. That's I didn't, I didn't like that word, but it's it's fine. It, it at least makes some sense. I don't know. Are you ready to learn about absinthe? I mean, I assume you already know about absinthe, but I actually don't know a whole lot about absinthe. Ooh. I know how to drink it, but I don't know much past that. Yeah, I well, so I've never actually had absinthe by itself. I've had a sazerac, which is a cocktail with absinthe, but I've never had it by itself. So I think that needs to be added to the to-do list. I do love a good Sazerac also, but you know, absinthe is a, it's, a, it's an interesting interesting beast if you do the whole like drip over the sugar cube mm-hmm. over ice into a glass. This is a really fun cool thing to do and it looks like you're performing a science experiment, but you're really not. <laughs> um, you're actually just getting drunk. Uh anyways, I'll let you talk. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so um, tell me what you know about absinthe before we start. Very little. I know that it it has a licorice flavor. Mm -hmm. I know that traditional old school absinthe had a pretty high wood, woodworm, wormwood, wormwood, not woodworm. Woodworm. (laughs) Wormwood content, had a pretty high woodworm content. God, that, I can't, I can't do it. Why can I not say wormwood? Frankie, I'm I like struggling. woodworm. <laughs> um, anyways, I know that it had a pretty high wormwood content back in the day, and that at least in the United States, that's not legal anymore. They recently upped the content levels that we could have, but it's still not legal to have the amounts that they used to have when that when absinthe had a hallucinogenic effect. Um. I honestly don't know what it's typically made of. I imagine there has to be like some an- anise in there or something, probably not positive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that, I think that's about, I think that's the breadth of my true absinthe knowledge. Cool. I'm so excited. I get to teach you things. <laughs> um, yeah, this is going to be a You're Wrong About episode. I'm kind of excited about it. Oh, was I wrong <laughs> about a bunch? No. Well, yes and no. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll stop the suspense. I'll just tell you. <laughs> so, I'm actually going to start out with talking about wormwood, which is an ingredient in absinthe. Um, wormwood is 
Oh, here we go with the Latin, starting right off with the Latin. Artemisia <laughs> absinthium of the Asteraceae family, so aka asters. Um, the etymology of its name comes from some pretty cool places. Artemisia comes from 300 different species of annuals, and they're all named after the Artemis, the goddess of the hunt and protector of the forest. That's dope. Mm-hmm. And according to the Herbarium Apulei, A-P-U-L-E-I, Apulei, Apulei, which is basically this middle-aged book. It was the first printed herbal with illustrations. Um, the story is that Artemis gives this plant to Chiron, who was a centaur healer, and he derives medicine from the leaves and names it in her honor, Artemisia. How cool is that? Yeah. Also, centaur healer. Yes, that is so cool. How have I never heard that's, of Chiron before? That's very on brand for you. I'm surprised that you haven't heard of Chiron I know. Like <laughs> I was reading that and I was like, okay, hold on. I need to research this first. Maybe not the most prominent of mythological characters, but definitely exists in that realm pretty heavily. Um, okay, the first herbal book has a centaur healer. This is just everything to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and um, absinthium means without sweetness. So that's also where the name absinthe comes from. Oh, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so wormwood is this pungent, silvery Mediterranean herb. The Latin name comes from Carl Linnaeus's Species Planetarium, published in 1753. And the drink shows up in liquor advertisements a few decades later, but it kind of took some time before it was introduced to the public. But Wormwood and Wine and Spirits dates back to Egyptian times. It was mentioned in the Ebers Papyrus, which is an ancient medical test from 1500 BC. Yeah. What? Uh-huh. You said 1500 B.C. B.C., yeah. There was a medical text. Mm-hmm, called the Ebers Papyrus. Ebers Papyrus. That's crazy to me. That just kind of blew my mind a little bit. Yeah. And in that book, it was Wormwood was recommended to kill roundworms and treat digestive problems. And around that same time in China, they were making medicinal wines, which was confirmed through a chemical analysis of vessels on archaeological sites, which I think is pretty cool. So it's been that around a while. That is very cool. I love that. Yeah. Give me some wormwood medicine. Yeah. So into that. And it was a household remedy since biblical times. The bitterness, <laughs> in true Christian fashion, the bitterness was a metaphor for the consequences of sin. Oh, God. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, literally, I can't with it. <laughs> okay, I had to ask how this was said, but I think I'm going to get it right. So here we go. In, Prober in Proverbs chapter 5, 3 through 4, I think that's right. Is that how you say a Bible You could thing? say chapter 5, verse 3 through 4. Yeah, chapter 5, verse 3 through 4 in Proverbs, it is, For the lips of a strange woman drops as in honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood. <laughs> oh, that brings back some <laughs> memories, Frankie. Sorry. I feel like that's kind of sexy, though. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure that my church never focused on that verse originally, I'm sure, because it did sound sexy. Um, <laughs> or maybe it's God. just how I said it in my, in my sexy podcasting <laughs> voice. <laughs> 
Sultry. <laughs> Sultry Frankie. Sultry, that's a better word. <laughs> um, no, that is... I mean, don't get me wrong. The Bible has some very beautiful verses. I just hate most of the people who read it and think that it's all fact. Anyways. it's It always confuses me, too, because it's like, well, if you don't know how to read it, then you're going to read it wrong. And it's like, I don't think that's how books work. Yeah, and also... What the fuck do you mean if you don't know how to read it? You're listening to the, you're listening, you're reading the, at bare minimum, 30 second translated version of the Bible. Don't yeah. tell me that you know what you're reading either, you dumbass. Get the yeah. fuck out of here. <laughs> Can't with it. I mean, listen, I'm okay with religions as long as they don't harm any other, any other person. And I think that's my biggest qualm with Christianity is that it's literally built on bloodshed. Truly. Bloodshed and war. Yeah, no. Anyways, basically the history, quick history goes, wormwood becomes a medicinal wine, which becomes vermouth. Would you tell me what vermouth is? Would I tell you what vermouth is? Yeah. Um, You're the I expert. can tell you what vermouth is used in. Yeah. I've never actually looked into vermouth that heavily. I know that it is technically a fortified wine. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there is sweet and dry vermouth, and they're aged and made differently. Um, I know dry vermouth is typically what you would put in any version of traditional martini, and sweet vermouth is what you put in, like, a traditional Manhattan. Oh, I love Manhattans. Mm. My vermouth knowledge is not that not that heavy because I don't personally like vermouth all that much. If I drink, I do love a Manhattan, but I like a black Manhattan. So I like to put either Chinar or Averna or some other kind of dark, very bitter liqueur into it instead of a sweet vermouth because I don't like sweet drinks. It's bitter like my soul, Frankie. That's how I like my alcohol. <laughs> Honestly, that sounds so good. I like things that are more bitter and sour, personally. Dude, Chinar, in, Chinar as a substitute for sweet vermouth in a Manhattan is perfection. Oh my gosh, I miss coming to you when you're bartending (laughs) i could i also i'm not drinking right now because i'm doing this um elimination diet to figure out what's wrong with my gut because it's just been bad for most of my life and um that includes no alcohol for a while so i feel like this whole episode i'm just gonna be drooling (laughs) don't worry guys i'm drinking enough for both of us (laughs) thank you i appreciate you (laughs) Uh, yeah so it becomes vermouth and wormwood was also used as a bitter and antimicrobial element to beer before hops. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Learning all kinds of stuff today. I kind of want to, I feel like some Asheville brewery probably tried to make a beer with uh, wormwood instead of hops, and I would love to try it. There has to be at least one out there. There has to be. They're all so fancy and experimental. I'm sure there's one. (laughs) Um, okay, so let's move on to absinthe a little bit. So absinthe is an alcoholic aperitif invented in Switzerland, and it was first distilled by Henri Pernod in 1797. And then it was manufactured in 1805, just over the border in southeast France. Basically, he did that just so he could afford taxes at the French border. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, aperitifs. Do you want to tell me about aperitifs? You're just quizzing me on my liquor I'm knowledge. I'm sorry. Here, I just, you know, it's totally fun. I thought we'd bring um, your bartender knowledge into this. <laughs> uh, 
aperitifs are typically, I mean, it can be almost anything that t- tends to be on the sweeter side. They are traditionally drank prior to the consumption of food. So it's like when you're coursing out meals, you'd have like an aperitif, a liquor, and a digestif. Aperitif being something sweeter, but not something that's going to overwhelm your palate. Your liquor is going to be paired, liquor or beer or spirit of some sort is going to be paired with your main course. And then your digestif is after you finish your meal. And it's typically something like a fernet or uh, like an underberg, something of that nature that's going to help settle your stomach. I love fernet. (laughs) I also love fernet. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. So basically, in absinthe, the primary flavor, like you said, is licorice because of anise. Okay. But we talked about wormwood because absinthe's reputation pretty much comes from wormwood. Wormwood wormwood is over there just like, I don't give a damn about my bad reputation. (laughs) (laughs) You want to know why that was so funny to me? Why? Because I literally watched Shrek. Yesterday. Oh, nice! <laughs> and it's just like immediately like, oh, that that okay. I'm just gonna hear that song twice in two days when I probably haven't heard it in ten years prior. <laughs> like, nice. As I was researching, it was like Wormwood has a bad reputation, and then the rest of my research, I just had that song stuck in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to sing it, obviously. So traditional absinthe is made with wormwood, anise, and fennel. And sometimes, depending on the brewer, they'll add other flavors like coriander, sometimes angelica, juniper, star anise. Um, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Sounds pretty simple, pretty basic. Pretty simple, pretty basic. It is generally, like you said, drank with ice cold water, dripped over a sugar cube if you like sweeter drinks, although apparently a lot of pretentious brewers are like, don't put sugar in my absinthe. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. You do this because the ice-cold water, when it's dripped into it, it creates this chemical reaction called the Lausch, or Lush, L-O-U-C-H-E, Lush. Um, But it's colloquially known as the arrival of the green fairy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It basically turns cloudy and opaque and green. This is because essential oils from the plants are unstable in the alcohol solution, and the ice-cold water breaks the chemical bonds and releases those oils. Well, isn't that just fucking cool? Yeah. Hey, science. You're pretty cool sometimes. Science is the best. So cool. So now we come on to the you're wrong about portion of this. The bad reputation and the dangers of drinking absinthe are greatly exaggerated, even from the past. (laughs) That's really not surprising, honestly. Yeah. It's kind of become this, like, huge story that everyone knows about, and it's wrong, and I will tell you why, and why it became such a huge thing that everyone thinks they know. Um, It came to be by storytelling, basically. How all good rumors start Word is just of a good mouth. story. Yeah, exactly. So in the late 19th century in Paris, there were all these artists and writers that were fans of the drink, and they all claimed that absinthe would make them hallucinate, and then they'd create their greatest work. You know, it was a drink loved by people like Van Gogh and Picasso, 
And it was just talked about and written about a lot by people who were really illustrative in their descriptions of things that they loved. I mean, I kind of love that too, though. Yeah. <laughs> like that's that like super Parisian style of just being like everything with a flourish, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so then absinthe after this becomes wildly popular because everyone's like, I want to hallucinate and make great art. <laughs> and... So then it kind of gets some backlash because the French wine industry is like, no, our profits are suffering. And the temperance movement is like, no, alcohol's evil. You shouldn't drink it. So they band together and oh, they make God. a smear campaign. And it works. Absinthe is, becomes banned in the EU and the US. So there is this chemical in Wormwood called Thujone. Thujone can create, like, really bad things, but um, there has never been enough in a bottle to Ever do, do anything. Bad. Yeah. I heard. Basically, what broke this ban in the EU and the U.S. is the 1970s. The 1970s, the rise of psychedelic drugs, they were like, ooh, I want to study this hallucinogenic effect, this Thujone. And they study it, and they study it, and they study it, and they find that it's really only effective in absurdly large doses. Right. And so they're like, eh, and then the risk-reward isn't worth it. So they're like, eh, whatever. And then they're like, there's never enough in absence to even really affect you, so I don't know why this is banned. The EU lifted the ban in 1998, and but then the U.S. took a little bit of time, of course, and we didn't lift it until 2007. But we also created these strict conditions on the Thujone amount, regardless of the fact that there's not going to be enough anyways. But yeah. Well, yep, that sounds about right. I remember when they lifted the restriction on... they It was always phrased as they were lifting the restriction on of wormwood being put in absinthe because it wasn't illegal mm. to buy absinthe, but you couldn't mm. have absinthe infused with wormwood. Gotcha. But absinthe will get me... It is a very peculiar type of drunk. I'll give it that. It's different. That's what I've heard. And um, here's the here's the reigning theory of why everyone is like, it's a peculiar drunk. It's, you know, hallucinogenics. And, oh my gosh, absinthe caused all these wild behaviors back in the day. Like, it's different. Basically, what people think is the reason for these, like the theory behind it, is that absinthe is a super high ABV. It is like 70 to 80%, which is twice as much as gin and vodka. Oh, so yeah, you so see you take two shots of that and get wildin' as opposed to the five shots yeah. of vodka you usually take, heard. Yep, exactly. And so everyone's just fucking wasted and they're like, whoa, man, I'm hallucinating. <laughs> have some fun facts fun facts get it fun facts so if you wanted to grow wormwood you could they're available at most garden stores but if you ask for worm wormwood they're going to be like no we don't have that you have to ask by their latin name artemisium absinthium artemisium absinthium i feel like i'm casting a spell artemisium absinthium <laughs> <laughs> totally <laughs> then you just throw up a bit of glitter and then everyone starts hallucinating <laughs> yeah 
But um, even if you do grow it, though, it's extremely bitter, and it's not really recommended for cocktails or consumption because it's really difficult to manage that taste without professional equipment. So pretty much it has to go through a distillation process yeah. to, to take that flavor down to an acceptable level. Yeah, that makes but sense. But it is a really pretty plant. It's nice and silvery and beautiful. I mean, if I had a big yard and I was not doing the whole lawn thing, which I wouldn't because I don't really like lawns, I would definitely use it as like a shrub. It's really pretty. I love that. Yeah. Um, it also does ward off moths and other pests. And fun fact, it's used in natural flea treatment. Huh. That's cool. Yeah. I will say be very careful people out there who decide to try and figure out how to use wormwood as a flea treatment because some people think that you can just like boil this shit down and put it on your animal and it'll be fine but a lot of stuff like that can burn your animal skin i'm just saying because there are yeah. stupid people out there no i know i just that. had this visual of like someone taking a bunch of leaves and like rubbing their dog down with it literally i can see that <laughs> happening so ridiculous Okay, and my last fun fact, um, sometimes you'll see people, I mean, you might know this, that do the flaming sugar cube effect for their absinthe cocktail, and they like light it on fire and all this stuff, but um, I learned in my research to beware of that, because it's really just a (laughs) it's really just a distraction for shitty absinthe. That makes absolute sense. The only application I've ever seen for a flaming sugar cube that I'm like, I enjoyed this. (laughs) <laughs> is in a painkiller because it doesn't change the drink. It's just something on fire on top of your drink, and I think that's fun. <gasps> I don't even know what a painkiller is. It's a rum drink that gets you really wasted. Nice. Okay, so I think I would like to thank my sources this time because I had a lot of fun reading these, and I found some really great articles. So the first source, obviously, The Drunken Botanist by Amy Stewart. Awesome. Such a good book. Pick it up if you can. I also got some information from the Herb Society of America's Encyclopedia of Herbs and Their Uses. The Healthline article, Does Absinthe Really Make You Hallucinate? in 2019 by Dr. Adrian Santos Longhurst. The Hedge Witches Field Guide by Ciolo Thompson. And Liquor.com's article, Five Biggest Myths, uh, Author Unknown, from October 2020. Thank you, sources. Okay. Well, you know what? I think that after this episode is over, I'm very tempted to go buy a bottle of absinthe. I know. I was just going to say, should we just go get some absinthe? (laughs) I think that sounds like a wonderful idea. It is not cheap, but it is worth it. It tastes good. Yeah, but on that, you talked about how wormwood was used medicinally all the way back as far as, what, 1500 BC? Yeah. (laughs) My, the history of what I'm going to be talking about boils down to even further back than that, kind of, kind Ooh. of, kind of. The history I'm talking about does at least, not the history of whiskey specifically, because that's what I'm going to talk about this week is some whiskey. One Yay. of my favorites. I, it used to be my absolute favorite. Like, the only thing I would really drink ever was whiskey. Mm-hmm. And then tequila stole my heart away. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now it's hard. It's hard for me to say that tequila isn't my favorite and whiskey is a very close second. But Do you spell it W-H-I-S-K-Y or W-H-I-S-K-E-Y? Interestingly enough, W-H-I-S-K-Y is the original way to spell it. Really? 
really? That's the older version. I have always personally spelled it W-H-I-S-K-E-Y. I don't know why. That just in my head is the way it has always worked, and that's how I've always spelled it. But I did, in the course of my research this week, find out that W-H-I-S-K-Y was actually the original spelling for whiskey. Cool. So I spell it ye old style. <laughs> ye old style? <laughs> no, but... Um, no, I just like less letters. I'm like, anytime I can cut out letters, let's do that. <laughs> see, I for I think for me, realistically, it just boils down to the first way that I spell it, and then it's just stuck there for forever. I don't think yeah. it has, like... <laughs> there's no, like, thought of efficiency in my writing when I add the extra E. It's just like, oh, I had the extra E the first time I ever spelled it, and now it looks really weird if the E's not there. <laughs> There's even times in my notes where, like, I've done it without the E because that's the way. It's like a quote. And I oh. look at it, and I'm like, why does that look stupid? Right. That looks dumb. <laughs> I don't like that. But anyways, I'm going to round off the episode by barely talking about plants at all. Welcome to Propagated Podcast. I'm going to talk <laughs> about the history of one of my favorite boozes. Um, so absinthe is definitely a really cool liquor, and we... Frankie did an awesome job of telling you about its history, but whiskey is so ingrained in so many cultures so deeply that it's almost hard to fit into one episode, Just even just the history of whiskey. Mm-hmm. So kind of what I'm doing today would be more of a Cliff Notes version, if you will, of a timeline of how whiskey existed and its impact on where it's from and where it came from and how it came to be, kind of, I guess. So to do that, I'm going to just very briefly talk about the history of booze and where it came from to begin with. So you have in, like, around 2000 BCE, and literally in ancient Mesopotamia, is some of the first known practices of distillation. And while it wasn't being used yet for booze, it was being used to make perfumes and aromatics. Mm. And so that's like how distillation got its source. And then you look all the way all the way up, like literally 2,100 years to ancient Greece. You look at this guy named Alexander of Aphrodisius. And he is the one who described taking seawater and distilling it into drinking water um and we still aren't still still haven't quite made it to the boozy process yet so essentially what i'm trying to encapsulate is that the distillation process is around for a very long time before we start using it for pure fun essentially (laughs) like but then once you get to about 500 500 ce you can look at distillation being carried around the world by the moors And as is true of a lot of things, as soon as you get some widespread knowledge of something, it starts to shift from its original purposes into a more fun way of being used. I think that's a pretty common thing that you can see. Yeah. People get experimental with it. (laughs) Right. And in this case, in particular, the origin of whiskey began around 1000 CE. Anywhere between 1,000 to 1,200 CE. Mm. And so that happened with the migration of monks into Ireland, away from Europe, into Ireland and Scotland. And so essentially, 
monks have been using distillation processes for a long time for different things. And then they were taking like wine and distilling it into, or grapes and distilling it into like vodkas and other different types of spirits. But once they moved into Ireland and Scotland, they realized they didn't have the space and or the established vineyards as Europe did. So they weren't using grapes anymore. And they started turning to fermented grain mashes. Mm. And that is the beginning of whiskey because whiskey is a grain liquor, which not everything else is. Um, or actually, most of them can be. A lot of it has to do with aging too. But So around the year 1405 is when you actually first get the written record of whiskey. It was actually in the Irish annals of Clomagnoise. I might have said that wrong. I looked up pronunciations for it, found like five different ones. <laughs> the one, but literally Clomagnoise was the one that I heard that made the most sense to me. And so I ran with it. Hopefully it's right. Um, <laughs> but anyways... Essentially, in one of their history books, it was said that the head of a clan died after taking a surfeit of aquavitae, which was later translated into whiskey because aquavitae was kind of what they Water used. Yeah, what they used to call every liquor for a while. And then <laughs> it like separated out into its sections when they began realizing they were all different. And it was actually at Christmas, which just passed. Mm-hmm. He died on Christmas after drinking Aww. way too much whiskey. which is hard to do guys i mean i guess not impossible but just for one night drinking too much whiskey that sounds like you had to have imbibed pretty heavily anyways since this is a plant podcast i kind of want to take a second to appreciate the plants that go into the liquor and kind of give you guys an idea of how it works So essentially, in whiskey specifically, you kind of have a holy trinity of plants that work together to be put into a mash bill that then gets distilled. And those plants are going to be corn, rye, and barley. And so essentially, when you go and buy your favorite brand of whiskey, the only differentiation between how they're making their liquor has to do with what is called the mash bill which is how much of percentage of each type of grain they're using. So if you go, for example, by Jack Daniels, their mash bill is 80% corn, 8% rye, and 12% barley. But if you go and buy Woodford Reserve, they're 72% corn, 18% rye, and 10% barley. So each one is going to give you a different flavor profile. And since it's me, and I can't go one episode without saying something a little preachy, <laughs> when I was looking up about mash bills and the different percentages of of grains that they're using, one on the list was bullet bourbon. And I would be remiss not oh, to tell yeah. you that if you are unaware, which I was unaware for a long time, and I think a lot of people are unaware because it never made big like national news or anything, bullet bourbon is a known homophobic company. Allegedly. Um, yeah, but I make it a point to tell everybody I know that because I didn't know. And then I was bartending and I recommended Bullet to a queer person. And then they told me the story and I was like, holy shit. So I immediately went to my owners and were like, we have to get rid of this. 
Like I won't, I don't want to serve this brand at our bar anymore. And we got rid of it because my, the owners yeah. of the bar I work at are fucking dope and are also queer. So it works out, but yeah. But anyways, that's, that's literally the only preachy part of my episode. I promise. <laughs> I know I preach a lot. We had but, to slip it in there, <laughs> but there has, there it's had to be a little bit. I mean, it's important to us as members of the LGBTQ community, you know? Yeah, and what I think what bothers me the most about that one is it got swept under the rug so quickly that I feel like yeah. a lot of places just don't know, and they're serving bullet, and they wouldn't be, but they had no idea that they weren't supposed to be because nobody, they, nobody ever found out, you know? All right, anyways, let's talk about some more history. So let's skip forward a little bit, a very little bit, to the late 13th century in the year 1494. <laughs> um, this is when dis. Whiskey distillation was totally in full swing, like going for it. So uh, according to the exchequer rolls, which this is another word I had to look up and really, really thought that it could not be exchequer. I thought that that's like, there's no way that's the way the word could be said, but it absolutely is. So according to the exchequer rolls of the same year, King James the Fourth of Scotland granted a large amount of malt to Friar John Core, specifically to make whiskey for the king. So at that point when the royals are like sending uh, monks malt just to make them whiskey, obviously it's made a pretty large impact on society. So as you go through history, especially in England and in the UK in general, there's a lot of different monarchs and every monarch is going to have their own opinion of how things are supposed to work. And so fast forward to King Henry VIII of England, which happened between the years of 1536 to 1541, came the dissolution of monasteries, which is pretty wild. Mm. But when you think of that, when all these monasteries are getting closed down, all these monks who are the primary makers of whiskey are essentially unemployed. Oh. They're, they're being kicked out of their homes. So this left many of them in the lurch and in need of a way to support themselves again. And it also meant that the royalty no longer governed production as it had, and whiskey came into the hands of the public. Oh. So pretty... That, the reason I bring King Henry Eighth up is because he literally made the shift from whiskey being something that the royals controlled and gave out the way they saw fit to being a publicly produced liquor. So now that whiskey has found its way into the hands of the public, you start seeing a lot more movement of whiskey, a lot more spread. So most whiskey was produced in Scotland and Ireland, and they played a huge role, the Scottish and Irish, in the spread of whiskey such as when they moved to the Americas and their new settlements, they brought the knowledge of whiskey production with them. And with that came the use of new plants and mashes and different styles of whiskey being made. Kind of fun fact. Look at the year 1608, which is so very long ago. 1608 marks the licensure of the oldest whiskey distillery that is still producing spirits today. Wow. And that is, is it? old Bushmills. Oh, cool. Yeah, That's crazy, so cool. right? You wouldn't think that something yeah. from 1608 would still be producing like that. But it's also, Bushmills is like 
most bars have Bushmills. Yeah, that's so cool. So I think one of the things, this is, I guess, kind of my you're wrong about section, or at least my I'm wrong about section. <laughs> uh, I always thought of Moonshine as being kind of restricted to the American Appalachians. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that that's like where the term was coined, like how like I thought it started around the Prohibition era in the U.S. Yeah. That is so very wrong. It's not true at all. It's way earlier than that. So as a result of the Acts of Union in the early 18th century, Scotland was merged with the kingdoms of England, thus creating Great Britain. So with that merger came new taxes, namely the English malt tax of 1725... And this tax threatened to end whiskey and forced most distilleries underground because they couldn't afford to get malt. And so since operations were majorically being ran at night, the name Moonshine was born. So Moonshine is actually from the 18th century. How cool. Which is crazy to me because I literally had no idea. That's an that's like another example of my American ignorance. I just assumed that moonshine had to be like a U.S. born thing because it's like where I grew up, but no, totally. moonshine was recycled from a very similar situation that happened in the U.K. Random fun fact: during the American Revolutionary War, whiskey was actually used as a currency because it was deemed so important. Ooh! So you could. Literally trade in whiskey for goods or goods for whiskey, which was, Love that. I think that's really fun. Also kind of depressing, but. I know. If you like, like, are we that far like, away from that now? <laughs> right, though. <laughs> okay. We talked about the first ever licensed distillery. If you want to talk about the first commercial distillery, that actually happened a very long time ago, too, in the year 1783. And it was on the banks of the Ohio in Louisville, Kentucky. Ooh. Wait, let me guess. Let me guess. Is it Jack Daniels? Nope. Mm-hmm. You want a second one? Um, Wild Turkey? Nope. You want a third one? No, I don't know enough whiskeys. <laughs> <laughs> it's Evan Williams, which I think oh, might Evan actually Williams. produce Wild yeah, Turkey, yeah. honestly. but Yeah. I should have guessed. Dang it. All right. So I guess now what I'm going to do is kind of just wrap up the the story of whiskey because it kind of gets more rapid at this point and a little bit more worldwide. So in lieu of speaking for five hours about whiskey, I'm just going to kind of hit some like milestones yeah. of like whiskey and what was happening. So in 1791, there was a new excise. And that was introduced to help fund debt from the Revolutionary War. And so since imports, import taxes were already high and excess tax on domestically produced distilled spirits were being levied, it kind of like broke the way that whiskey was being produced in the United States, at least. Mm. So because of that, there was unrest between grain farmers and the U.S. government. And it was actually dubbed the Whiskey Rebellion, which is fun. 
kind of. Mm-hmm. It was really terrible. But farmers were used to distilling their surplus grains into whiskey. And since the government was not quite letting the whiskey leave the way it was used to be able to, it's a really complex tax system that they made, so it's kind of hard to explain. Yeah. But... What, the U.S. government? No, never. (laughs) But they essentially made, like, the farmers were just being like, y'all can get fucked. It's a united protest. Nobody wants to deal with this. You're being fucking stupid. We hate you. Um, But unfortunately, they kind of got squashed because President Washington responded by sending in a militia force of 13,000 men to march west and just meet any resistance to the new taxes with force. And so, literally, they just kind of got, they just got squashed, which is unfortunate. But they they still got their accomplished goal a little bit later, because in 1801, Thomas Jefferson took office. And part of the reason he was able to take office was because he pledged to repeal that tax if voted into power. And he did that in 1801. Another... Fact mixed with a fun fact. 1820, there was a Scottish grocer named John Walker who began producing his own whiskey, which would become one of the world's most famous and widely distributed brands of Scotch whiskey in the world. Obviously, Johnny Walker. Yeah. The fun fact about this was that John Walker himself was sober. Really? Sober as a judge, didn't drink. He just produced his own whiskey and sold it and probably made a killing off of it. Huh. Do you think he taste tested it or he was just like, I don't yeah, know. All right, sounds good. Slap what I read <laughs> and I didn't look too deeply into it was that he was sober. I don't, I suppose that he could have tasted it and still been able to call himself sober. I, I don't know if yeah, like they mean sure. like sober as a judge and never took a sip of alcohol ever or like sober as in wasn't a drunken idiot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So we've been talking about several decades of time here, right? It wasn't until 1823 that the UK finally brought moonshine production to an end when they gave the Scottish distilleries an option to legalize their operations by paying a fee. So still kind of fucking them over, but at least letting them come back up from the underground. Also, in 1823, the process that is sour mash was developed by James C. Crow at what is now the Woodford Reserve Distillery in Kentucky. Ah. Um, and so the pro- that process is how we have such good consistency. Like when you buy one bottle of Jack to the next bottle of Jack, it's going to taste the same. Whereas oh, yeah. before, that wasn't an option because they were literally taking grain and distilling it every time, and the distillation process would be just a little bit different because the bacteria would grow in different ways that was used, gotcha. like, in the fermentation process. Yeah. But what they did was take spent mash, a little bit of the spent mash that they had already distilled, and added it to a new mash so that the acids and the live yeast would grow from the spent mass. and it would control the growth of foreign bacteria, which made for consistent batches so that every bottle is as close to the previous as is possible nice that's so smart and so that literally revolutionized the way that whiskey aka bourbon is made and is part of what allowed them to differentiate those terms because you know you always hear there's like whiskey is this thing and bourbon's another 
which really isn't true. The truth behind it is whiskey is one way or anything can be a whiskey. It's like a it's like a square and a or square and a rectangle, rectangle situation, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So whiskey can be anything, but bourbon has to be made under certain legal requirements to be able to be allowed same, to call bourbon. And the it's the same with rye too, right? Yes, and rye as well. Rye has to be a certain percentage rye over corn or uh Barley. Good God. Corn, rye, and barley. It has to be more rye than corn and barley. Good fucking Lord. Literally did hours of research on this, and I can't even remember the three primary ingredients in whiskey while I'm talking. Good fuck. Um, So then that revolutionized, like I said, having that consistency revolutionized whiskey in a way. But then in 1831, there was... An Irish inventor, and I'm so sorry that I'm probably going to fuck this name up too, Aeneas Coffee. And this person created a continuous still, which allowed manufacturers to produce more whiskey at a higher level of efficiency and at a lower cost. Hmm. Again, like back in the 1800s, 17 to 1800s, we're just having a huge revolution in how whiskey is being made which also i'm sure plays out in other liquors as well in the same time because that equipment and that ideology would have been useful trade over knowledge and other things too i'm sure so in 1840 there's a company called old bourbon county which had been producing old bourbon county whiskey for a lot of years but then that was the first time that the name bourbon was used to differentiate itself from other whiskeys gotcha um and then you have 1850 is when blended whiskey first comes into production so they're taking different uh batches and blending them to try and create different flavors which is really cool irish distillers fucking hated that so they they were like trying to say that's not even fucking whiskey dude like what are you talking about you can't (laughs) no we're not doing that Absolutely not, <laughs> which is why everyone will still swear by up and down that single malt whiskey is going to be the best, which I agree with. But blended whiskey came about in 1850, much to the chagrin of a lot of fucking people. People did not, <laughs> people did not like what was his name? I have it in here somewhere. Oh, Andrew Usher mixed traditional pot still whiskey with that of a new batch produced in a coffee still. And that's when the Irish people were like, go get fucked, dude. You're not. (laughs) This is not whiskey. You can have your thing, and if people like it, cool. But I hate that you want to call this whiskey. You have to do something. So they called it blended whiskey. Whiskey product. (laughs) Whiskey product. God. (laughs) It's like talking about hot dogs and fucking bratwurst or something, you know? Meat product. Meat product. (laughs) Um, Then we're going to amp up time. And kind of get closer to, like like I said, it, there's a bunch of history with whiskey. But once you start getting into more modern years, it's not as prominent a role in things. So, obviously, you have 1920 through 1933. Those are the 13 years that American Prohibition banned all production, sale, and use of alcohol. But the cool thing, or I guess not the cool thing, but something that this did that benefited someone was the federal government made an exception, which I didn't know this, for the prescription of medicinal whiskey from a doctor, 
and it had to be mm -hmm. sold through a licensed pharmacy. So mm -hmm. another fun fact, during the same time frame, the pharmacy chain Walgreens used that to their like extreme advantage mm -hmm. and grew from two or grew from 20 stores in 1920s to nearly 400 stores. Whoa. So literally Walgreens probably has its proliferation rides on the backs of prohibition and whiskey really yeah and then in 1964 fun fact the american congress declared bourbon whiskey the country's official distilled spirit Ooh. and that's when the like real specific regulations were laid out that are to be met in order to label a whiskey as bourbon wasn't until really the 60s and now, current day, you can walk the American Whiskey... Well, not walk it. You can drive through the American Whiskey Trail, and it is launched to promote yeah, many of the historical sites and operating distilleries all the way from Kentucky to New York. Cool. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's whiskey. That was a lot. Yeah. we. I mean, I feel like that trail would be cool just to find out about... Like, get get to see all the different distilleries and stuff still in production today oh absolutely there are a lot and yeah. everything that you guessed is also old yeah old af <laughs> i it feel just like wasn't all the oldest like, whiskey's one of those ones where if you've heard of it before it's probably one of the older ones like it's hard to break into the whiskey game it seems like yeah i mean there are a lot of yeah no you're right you're right you got japanese whiskey that came in a lot later mm. that's gotten like pretty popular now but even those are, like, just a wholly different kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's the history of whiskey as glazed over by yours truly because I would have been talking for hours and hours if I tried to go <laughs> any deeper into any of those facts. We can always do a part two also. Whiskey is fascinating. We could. I could also probably try and make an episode about whiskey that actually focuses on the plants and why they're important. <laughs> since we are a plant podcast i mean i feel like at some point we'll probably just do like cereal crops so yeah um cool well thank you daniel that was fascinating no thank you for listening <laughs> this was a fun episode i love the alcohol episodes it's just like again one of those things that you don't think about how involved plants are in these things that pretty much are in a lot of people's cabinets you know yeah not everyone's but a lot not everyone's, but a lot. And it's such a huge part of our history. And yeah. Well, realistically, Sorry. practically everyone's got some form of alcohol in their home that came from a distillation process. Like if you have pure vanilla extract, that's an alcohol. Mm -hmm. Or um, isopropyl alcohol. Yeah. I don't know how they, I don't know exactly how that works. I think that's like a. Like ethanol. Yeah, I don't know if that's actually... Well, I guess it's all plant-based at some point. If you have any kind of alcohol content, it came from some plant at some level. I think yeah. isopropyl alcohol is just like so far distilled that there's no remnants of plant life left in there. Yeah, <laughs> it's not for taste. <laughs> Definitely don't taste it. Probably yeah, eat your insides no. up. Well, cool. Thank you all so much for joining us today. You can find us at our beautiful, still kind of new 
uh, website at propagatedpodcast.com. It has all kinds of fun stuff there. And we started a Patreon. So if you want to support the show, you can go there. You can find that link on the podcast website. Um, We really appreciate you if you do support us. We understand times are tough and you definitely don't have to. You can also support us by following us on social media. You can follow us on Instagram at... Oh, am I saying stuff now? Uh, At Propagated Podcast. And on Twitter at... At Propagated Pod. And you can also email us at... PropagatedPodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and if you want a free way to support the show, please leave us a review wherever you can. We know Spotify doesn't do reviews, but if you're listening on iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere else that does reviews, please, please take five seconds to do one. It really helps us with our visibility and helps other people find us, and it really helps out our show. I was going to add something, but Frankie just did a lovely job. Please support us. We love you all. <laughs> it's like I've done this before. <laughs> thank you so much we would love to chat with you and hear from you and you can tell us about your favorite whiskeys or that time you did absinthe or you know really any of it just you know find us online yeah it doesn't have to be from this episode either if you're more interested in the spooky stuff we talked about in our halloween episodes hit us up about Mm -hmm. that too we're not we're not picky we just want to hear from you yeah tell us what you've enjoyed and what you'd like to see more of we would love to hear from you All right. Well, I guess that's it. Thank you all so much. Bye, guys.